0: $10.6 billion. That's the real-world, all-in budget gap that New York City could be facing once you include all spending that's currently unbudgeted or under-budgeted. The influx of migrants and people seeking asylum has certainly placed a heavy strain on the city's coffers, but it's only part of the story. Then you have the well-named fiscal cliffs, where the city is using short-term federal COVID funding and funds from a temporary Wall Street boom for ongoing programs. Add to that, the labor contracts that have reasonable pay increases, but no offsetting efficiencies or savings to pay for them. Hello, I'm Andrew Ryan, the president of the Citizens Budget Commission. Thanks for joining us for another episode of What's the Data Point, which this time is a co-production with Ben Max and his Max Politics podcast. Today, Ben talks with me and Anna Champany, CBC's vice president for research about the city's decisions and unforeseen events that led to this $10.6 billion gap and the options for closing it while ensuring New York City is on sound financial ground and delivering cost-effective core services to New Yorkers. It's time for the city, and that includes both the mayor and the city council, to prioritize critical services and wisely make spending choices. Yes, it's time for those hard decisions. We've kicked the can down the road for far too long. I hope you find this discussion helpful and informative as we head into a critical juncture for New York City's financial strength and livability. Until next time, when you hear a public official talk about a policy, a program, or a proposal, always remember to ask, what's the data point?
1: And so joining me now to discuss the New York City budget, the city's fiscal picture, the mayor's budget choices in management, and more are two experts from the Citizens Budget Commission, Andrew Ryan, president of CBC, and Anna Champany, vice president for research at CBC. Andrew Anna, thanks for joining me. How are you?
2: Great, thank you for having us.
0: Thank you for having us, and congratulations on the new gig.
1: Thank you very much. Appreciate it. So, a lot to get to here, and I think uh, I think this is so essential because there's a lot of sort of um, you know very sort of quick takes on what the mayor is doing and not doing, and a lot of I think misunderstandings about the city budget and the city's fiscal picture, and that's where we, of course come to you to uh to help us sort it all out so I have a bunch of questions but obviously if there's really important points on anything that you think are related jump us to whatever you think is is needed for New Yorkers to get a better understanding of what's going on here and where the city's at uh as we speak here in early December 2023 so one big question to start us off then we're that then we'll zoom way out but um explain to people how, Per the mayor's November budget update, the city budget grew within the current fiscal year by 3.4 billion dollars, I believe. But he's also being criticized by a whole bunch of people for making cuts to services. Just, just give people the sort of gist of how that works budgeting wise. The city budget continues to grow even within the fiscal year where the budget was just agreed upon at the end of June but also there's a series of, of cuts being made to certain agencies and some to services that have people very worked up here. How do we reconcile that?
2: Um, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, I think there are a couple different pieces that all happen and you end up with this situation that feels counterintuitive. One is that there is federal money that was not spent last year in 23 that we can roll forward. So we move that and that makes the budget bigger. Another piece is that the mayor's original estimate for migrant costs in fiscal year 24 was too low. They came out in August and said, this is gonna be nearly $2 billion higher. So they put that spending in the budget. Um, So those are sort of the two big pieces that would have increased the amount of spending this year. but there were also other sort of changes within agencies where some agencies might have had new needs or additional spending and other agencies were uh, reducing their spending. So that is part of the, the picture is also that you can have shifts within individual agencies, either up or down, that don't affect the total amount. Um, so it is possible to cut and have the budget go up or stay the same size.
1: Sure, we're, we're working with a lot of moving parts here in the budget, but it is just a fascinating dichotomy that it's not like we're talking about an overall budget reduction here, but the mayor's got to move different different pieces around and, and make a variety of choices. All right.
0: Ben, ben yeah, may I ahead. just add, one of the things people don't necessarily always understand is the city has this multi-year budget baseline and costs generally are increasing over time. When the mayor is talking about a savings program, it's off of that usually increasing baseline. So year to year, you say, oh, next year, there's going to be this cut. But if it was expected, just for example, something was going to go up 6% and you cut some of it, maybe it's still going to go up 3%. So that is why, despite as the mayor's had four savings plans before the one he just proposed, yet the budget is still growing.
1: I mentioned a little bit in my introduction, but um, let's let's just zoom out to where we are in the process here. Uh, We're speaking on December 7th, 2023. It's currently fiscal year 2024. That goes from July 1, 2023 to the end of June 2024. Uh, The budget was adopted. The mayor and the city council came to agreement. City council passed it at the end of June. Um, We got the November budget update from the mayor. Now, the city council is considering it. We saw a year ago the mayor made a number of changes in the November budget mod- modification. We've got a little bit of a Groundhog Day situation here where the city council was upset about the way that he handled those changes. They held a hearing. They were still upset about it. And then ultimately, instead of voting on the modification, they just let it age into effect. Um, Is there anything else process-wise people need to know? Is there anything to watch for and what the city council could do here? Um, You know, when I had city council speaker, Adrian Adams on the podcast uh, several weeks ago, we sort of had a little talk about, hey, the mayor's budget modifications coming up. What are you watching for? What have you been warning him about trying to not have conflict? And she said, well, we don't want to see wholesale cuts and some of this. I said, well, what can you do differently this year? And she didn't really have a specific answer on that do you see any leverage that the city council can take here? They said last year that they let the budget age, the modification age into effect in part because they didn't wanna risk cutting their discretionary allocations to nonprofit groups, which again, is an amount of money that pales in comparison to some of the cuts that they say they're opposed to certain agencies and services. But anything else on the process and the sort of question about what comes next that we should know about here, uh, Anna?
2: well the, the modification process is sort of a very arcane process that many new Yorkers aren't aware of but essentially for cur- uh, for money that the council's already appropriated they have very limited powers they can as they do let them age into or they can vote them down they can't change them they can't modify them um, and so i think they're in this particular piece in november very constrained as to what their options are for how to address changes in the current year that's not to say you know the mayor's proposal includes a four it's a four-year financial plan as andrew said there are cuts that are being proposed and changes in in programmatic priorities for fiscal year 25, 26, those will reappear in a preliminary budget, we'll have council hearings, we'll have a response, there'll be an executive budget, and then ultimately negotiations. So I think the focus really is on those future years and and what are the priorities and how do we maintain balance? And that's really where the fiscal challenge is too. The city has on paper a $7.1 billion budget gap for fiscal year 25 that they have to close and balance in January. By our estimate, if you sort of fully reflect all programmatic spending that isn't in the budget, you're looking at more of a $10.6 billion gap. So that's really where the focus needs to be. How do we bring that into balance and maintain the critical services New Yorkers need?
1: And by the way, CBC uh, has the current fiscal year budget really at even $5 billion of he- ahead of what the mayor calls it, right? Can you explain that? The mayor says the fiscal year 24 budget is 110 and, and change billion. dollars, And you say, actually, it's $115 billion.
0: Yeah. D- despite having the best accounting rules, maybe of any government in terms of in law set up after the 1970s fiscal crisis, the city, city still in good accounting has the flexibility to prepay expenses for the following year. So in a certain sense, if you were to pay your January rent in December, like your next year's rent, you know, it, it, it's December now. If I pay my January rent, next year I'd only pay 11 months rent. It's not like I really, my rent went down. It's just I prepaid it. Mm-hmm. So when we look at the budget, we look at what do you, what does the city really owe? in this, in each fiscal year. And that's where the mayor in last fiscal year, there was money that frankly was rolled from the prior fiscal year, but the city prepaid five and a half billion dollars of expenses. Now in his last financial plan, he's planning to prepay 600 million for next year. You net all that out. And that's where you end up with a a budget that's bigger than people will think because it's bigger than on paper. and, And you're exactly right in the 115, uh, billion dollar
1: realm. And, and, and this all works, you know, in a sense, if that's, you know, there's higher than expected revenue that keeps coming in and you have money left over at the end of the fiscal year, then you prepay the bills for the next fiscal year. That all works until you don't have the money to prepay for the next fiscal year, right?
0: Exactly. If you prepay yeah. more in the first year than you prepay in the next year, you're actually in a bad situation because it meant mm-hmm. you spent more than you got in. And maybe you could do it that one time. But when those revenues don't recur, and that's the situation we look like we're in right now, that we're going to hit those fiscal cliffs, hit and and it's actually going to the reckoning is coming. And as Anna said, you add up all those gaps on paper, you sit City and federal fiscal cliffs, meaning money that programs that are going to continue, but money that's not there next year, and the under budgeting. You're up over ten billion dollars, and that, if you think about the city funded base of the budget being around eighty two billion dollars, that is a hefty portion, no matter how Mm -hmm. you slice it. -hmm.
1: Uh, Anna, before again, before we get into some of the nuts and bolts of this current plan, say a little bit about how the city budget has grown in the in recent years. We have basically, um, I mean, we've had more or less a dozen years other than what was really turned out to be something of a blip during COVID because federal money did wind up coming through and tax revenues wound up being much more resilient than people thought. Uh, Other than that sort of blip, if we can call it that, we've had sort of a dozen years of like boom time and uh, m- immense revenue growth and then also immense city spending growth.
2: Yeah, I mean, the the, the budget grew um, rapidly coming out of the Great Recession. If you go back to, to 2013 um, and sort of towards the tail end of um, Mayor de Blasio's, you know, Second term prior to COVID, we had a couple of years where spending, city funded spending grew more than 6% a year. So we were, the economy was doing well. Property taxes uh, had been growing steadily, as well as other taxes. um, And the city was using that to expand programs and services. Um, And then you're right, we had COVID. There was a fear that. The recession and economic impacts of COVID would sort of take the floor out of taxes, and states and localities would be suffering. It turns out, if you actually look at the city's January 2020 economic forecast for 20 uh, for fiscal year 20 through 24, um, prior to the pandemic, and what we actually collected, it's almost the same. So mm-hmm. dollar for dollar, the city didn't see a tax revenue shortfall. There's a change in the mix of taxes um, that came in. We had less property tax, less sales tax, significantly more personal income tax because Wall Street did really well during the pandemic and and there were capital gains and high Wall Street profits that supported the city's uh, tax revenue base. So we were able to, on a city-funded basis, grow spending from fiscal year 21 to 22 by 6% and then 10% last year. Um, so we have seen this budget growing very rapidly, and the reality is it's grown to an unsustainable level. So now we have revenues sort of coming back down to more normal trend. Revenues are going to grow on the forecast about 2 to 3% a year. Expenses will grow more rapidly than that, and we have these budget gaps. We've b- sort of built up spending to a level that we can't sustain.
1: Now – as the city grew its budget, there were revenues to rely on. As you said, now we're in this situation where some of that growth was reliant on these federal infusions that were one time, that's the fiscal cliff, we're heading to to a place where you fall off the cliff. Um, there's obviously questions we, we, I don't think we'll have time to get into here about Do you try to raise more revenue? The city council is saying part of their response will be to ask Albany for certain revenue raisers. Governor Hochul has said in her next budget plan, she doesn't plan to raise taxes. That conversation will, of course, happen. Andrew, feel free to comment on that. But but let's talk just in the current dynamics that we have, right? without the prospect necessarily of some massive infusion of revenue or even significant infusion of revenue, the city, the city budget continued to grow. It was growing at a at a healthy clip as revenues were. The population of the city was growing. You know, there were there were all these sort of positive trends overall, uh, especially during the de Blasio years pre-COVID. Um then we get into this COVID situation where you have some of the trends you just mentioned, Anna, but then you get these infusion of funds. And Talk a little bit about the decisions that de Blasio and the city council made that sort of set up this situation we're in now, expanding on this sort of fiscal cliff. I mean, if you have a few examples, uh, I mean, I have some, but if you want to give a few examples of the fiscal cliff funding, that would help you know, people sort of have a little more to chew on here.
2: Sure. So when we talk about fiscal cliffs, what we're really talking about is a choice Uh, to fund a recurring program with non-recurring revenue. So you're going to fund it basically for one year at a time. Um, And, you know, there, there are a couple prime examples. So one thing I will note is about 800 and there's a the federal fiscal cliff for the COVID aid is probably about 850 million dollars and it's mainly in the Department of Education who got where there was substantial federal money it includes things like the Summer Rising program 176 million is not budgeted in fiscal year 25 for that program it had been supported with federal dollars there's no money there next year so either the program goes away or we have to shift that money from somewhere else. Um, A number of restorations And early in COVID, there were cuts to DOE spending. Some of those were restored uh, in school budgets with the COVID money. That COVID money is running out as well. So those are some examples. But what's also important to note is that when we had that strong revenue growth during both at the end of Mayor de Blasio's term and during COVID, there was a choice at the in budget negotiations to add programs one year at a time. So you would adopt a budget for fiscal year 24, you would add a billion dollars of new spending in fiscal year 24, but not at beyond that. And that total has now sort of ballooned to nearly $2 billion of recurring programming that we support with city revenue one year at a time. The biggest example, the FEPS housing vouchers. We have virtually nothing in the city budget to support that program next year. And that's more than a half a billion dollar program. Um, And there are a lot of these uh, sort of city funded fiscal cliffs scattered across many city agencies. Um, And that's really sort of been a a significant problem. I see Andrew wants to chime in.
1: Yeah. And Andrew, maybe combined with this, I wanted to ask you building off of that. What would it have? What would it have looked like for De Blasio and the City Council to do a better job with that one-time funding? But go ahead with what you're going to say. Well, first. I mean,
0: two things. I th- I think it is very hard for government to spend money one time.
2: Mm-hmm. If you
0: think about the pandemic and students, there was a huge influx. Um, um, Seven billion in the city, thirteen billion statewide for education aid from from covid aid, The problem is you knew that students needed to reverse learning loss, but it's not like you can hire 10,000 teachers for one year. So this is very hard. Then there's also the the compact between government and and its people saying, oh, we're going to fund this program for one year. That's really hard for people to understand and remember because that summer rising program, you know, we all knew, and Anna wrote this brilliant paper two years ago. Um, you know, relief now, cliffs later. I think is what it was called, something yeah. like that. Great title, Anna. Um, yeah. And you saw it coming because were people going to say, "Oh, that's okay. I don't need it." Yeah. Um, so it is very. It is a challenge to do. It has to be selective, transparent, and the reality of those um, programs declining has to be repeated. And communicated. However, of course, the natural um, inclination of governing is to deliver to the people, to show you what good we're doing, and not to say, and it's going to go away. So, you know, it it gets into this cycle. Here's the challenge with every administration, and at every time, there are reasonable priorities. And they might be different both over times and administrations. That's fine. Like Azana said, um, the FEPS housing vouchers, as Mayor de Blasio talked with the nonprofit community about increasing their overhead rates. You know, there are different priorities at over time, and you might decide that something is really important. The the flip side of that, you have to decide something else might not be as important. Mm-hmm. You have to make choices because it's a relatively fixed pot. And that's where when you have like these Wall Street money coming in, which you know during the during the um, during the pandemic, to compensate for some um, slight reduction in property taxes, or even towards the right before the pandemic, the strong revenues coming in, it's so tempting not to make those choices in the short run because you have money burning a hole in your pocket.
1: So, <laughs> getting into a, a a little bit more of the shift here in the November plan, is it is it safe to say that this is? the most drastic mid-year budget change we've seen in a very long time in the city. I I didn't look this up, but I couldn't think of anything during the de Blasio years where mid fiscal year you had as significant of a shift as it seems like we've had here. I don't know if that's something you all have looked at, but it seems to me like this is perhaps the most drastic mid fiscal year modification we've seen in in quite some time.
2: Well, I mean, Mayor de Blasio had the good fortune of governing primarily through a record expansion. So until COVID, he really wasn't hit with a fiscal crisis that would have sort of necessitated a mid-year adjustment. If you go back, uh, both coming out of the 2001 recession and 9-11 and then the 2008 recession, in both those cases, you had multiple rounds of pegs, both mid-year and out years, uh, that Mayor Bloomberg had to implement in order to balance those budgets.
0: Um, and I, I, I want to I mean, be I guess, very specific, if I may. Please. And it, you're right to say in recent memory, because we did have the longest recovery in not just post-World War II, but pre, um, and I can't go back in history. In 2001, when I started at the health department, I had to deliver for the November plan the completion of an 11% peg for the November plan. Mm-hmm. And... That was not the end of that peg process. There were pegs during my time in government two to three times many years, even when the economy was growing. The problem, is, it is hard. These decisions are hard. The challenge is, um, do we have the data, the management systems, and the management capacity to make those hard choices well? Because if you don't have the data figure out which programs are most impactful or what is less impactful, you're just kind of swinging blind.
1: Right. Don't let me forget to come back to that point, because I want to come back to that in a minute. But to underscore some of, of the point, though, I think you already made it in part, a because the asylum seeker funding was seemingly so under budgeted and the adoption in June, there's been a lot of sort of criticism of this, especially even from the mayor's uh, sort of usual more conservative allies but uh what's you know something went awry there i mean you know the mayor and his budget team have said we sort of warned you if our if our sort of worst case projections started to come true this could be the trajectory of the spend but the budget was agreed upon at the very end of june and then very quickly in august they're coming with new projections and then we see it reflected in the november plan so that's sort of the the only really big shock to the system here is the re-estimation of those asylum seeker service funds that were part of this, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, they did significantly increase the projected spending in 24, but more so in fiscal year 25, um, mm-hmm. which they had had sort of at a very low level, I think. And now we have sort of very low levels in 26 and 27. I think it's very hard for the city to really try to figure out what the trajectory is over more than a, you know, 6, 12, 18 months. Um, but I think this has been a challenging situation in that the sort of number of families and individuals arriving in the city has continued to uptick and and go sort of higher than their projections and they have not been very successful bringing down their per diem costs. So the amount that they spend per day, which they had hoped to bring down instead went up. I think you know they—they they have made uh, reducing these costs part of the upcoming peg for the January plan. So we should all know this is not the last round of cuts that's going to be proposed. Uh, but I think you know this is an area where there needs to be a long-term strategy to rein in the costs and mm-hmm. be more clear about what services we can provide um, and how we can pay for them. Um, and in, in- Andrew, yeah. I,
1: think- well, I was just going to add, just to underscore your point, because I was about to say something similar. In the uh, PEG letter uh, in November, um, it, it indicated that the administration is, is ordering its agencies and offices to reduce asylum seeker exp- expenses by 20%. So that's a major directive to reduce those costs. There are real questions about what state funding will be allocated in the next state budget. The governor seemed to indicate that she wanted to reduce the amount of state funding that was going for shelter services and try to increase for, you know, things like legal assistance to get asylum seekers, you know, their paperwork done so they can be on a path towards either getting asylum or not, and work permits. Uh, But then she sort of seemed to shift on that a little bit. And then Uh, As the mayor announced some of these budget reductions, she also said, you know, she was talking with her budget team about how to help the city more generally, especially related to public safety. Um, So there's a lot of moving parts there on the asylum seeker costs. But that's obviously one of the biggest shifts in this November budget plan that that changed the game a lot here. Andrew, you wanted to jump in.
0: Yeah, you know, I think it is worth cleaving these two parts of the problem um because sometimes as we put them together people start to generalize and 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 miss certain things the asylum seeker costs are ultimately you know from its origin unexpected hard to predict and there have been questions about the amount and it is an eye popping per you know household per night cost of $390 approximately so yes bringing it down 20% 20%s a lot but given how much we're spending Per night, you know, getting perspective, you know, it, it looks a little different if you're trying mm-hmm. to bring it down. Because originally, when they talked about bringing it down from 362 to 320, and we're up to 390, then you start to fit, put this into perspective. That portion of, of the problem next year is, you know, uh, of the city's portion is um 500 5.5 uh, 5 billion dollars. So if you take on a six point 10.6 billion dollars and you shaved off 5.5, you'd still have a huge budget gap having nothing to do with asylum seekers. Now, you'd have more money in your pocket because the city's laying out a lot of money, Mm -hmm. no question. But sometimes people think, well, it's the asylum seekers, if, if that would just go away or the feds would pick up the share that they should, we wouldn't have a problem. The reality is we've got two components of a huge problem. Both are big in and of themselves one unexpected not of our own making but one the, fundamentally the product of choices that we made over time
1: one of those other choices the p- partial choice was the settling of labor contracts i say partial choice because they have to settle the labor contracts but the choice within there is the is the details um so s- remind people explain to people who who haven't you know don't know at all how those factor into the larger budget picture here now some of that actually is part of the November update because there were mid-fiscal year changes to account for some of the ratification of certain labor contracts correct me if I'm wrong but I believe I believe I've read that um and, and seen that uh but that there were some aspects of that work that were part of these adjustments mid-fiscal year but in terms of the bigger picture here it's very important to sort of understand how, Needing to settle those contracts and the decisions that the city made with the unions in settling most of those and the pattern bargaining have impacted this broader fiscal picture.
2: So the city has over 100 different collective bargaining units. I think that's important to note. And so one of the ways that they approach the, the bargaining is that they basically set patterns with some of the larger unions at the start, and then the expectation is that everyone else will follow suit. Um, and that's what they did this time. They had a contract with District Council 37, the largest civilian uh, collective bargaining unit for the city, where they set a pattern over five years. It's four raises of 3% a year and 3.25 in the last year. They then also settled a contract with the Police Benevolent Association, um, which represents the, the uniformed police officers and set a pattern for uniformed employees, which is sometimes not always higher than the civilian pattern. That was three and a quarter, three and a quarter, three and a half, three and a half, four 4%. So a couple percentage points, if you do the sort of the compounding over the five years, uh, higher than the civilian patterns. So we agreed to these raises given inflation and the economic situation, arguably reasonable levels. But how does the city fund for for labor contracts? They have what's called a labor reserve. So they had put aside money saying, we know we have contracts expiring. We're going to set aside for raises of 1.25. So anything up to one and a quarter percent a year was covered, was already in the budget. But these numbers that I just went over were higher. And so what the city needed to do was set aside and and put money in the budget to cover the full cost of the pattern. And they do this for all the contracts once they set the pattern. So basically back when when the patterns were set, they increased the city budget by $16 billion over five years to cover the full cost of this pattern citywide. Most of that money was still sitting in this labor reserve then what happens is a contract is ratified and in the next financial plan the city moves the money from the labor reserve into the specific agency so when you look at the november mod you see a lot of money moving into agency budgets for collective bargaining it's important to note that's not a net increase that money was put in the budget a few financial plans ago it's just now being put into the agency to reflect those specific contracts but a large part of that increase in spending that we've seen is that these raises were, you know, in the order of three to three and a half percent per year. And employee compensation costs are half of the city's budget. So this, this is a big deal and it is a significant driver of the costs. I think what the the other piece, and, and I think Andrew wants to talk about this some, is that there were no productivity savings. There were no efforts agreed to between labor and management to pay for the raises by improving productivity. Do you wanna add to that?
0: Certainly. Now, I don't wanna pretend that this is radically different than history. Negotiating with labor and identifying specific productivity increases to offset raises, it's the right thing to do and it doesn't happen enough. Um, I will say, Mayor de Blasio had two rounds of health savings with, with the unions. Some of it was a little smoke and mirrors, but there was some real substance there as well um, mm-hmm. that provided real savings. There's been different things over time. But the reality here is those raises, as Anna was describing, in the last year of financial plan, they grow because they compound every year. $4.8 billion a year in that last year of the financial plan, offset by nothing negotiated, whether it be productivity. Health savings, consolidation of welfare benefit funds, or even straight givebacks, which are in those hierarchy of things, the last thing you want to do. Um, but none of that offset, so all that was added to unfunded spending in the in in the budget. And yes, so now the mayor is going to agencies saying, "Okay, we need five percent, and and you should focus on productivity." And every and 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 the peg letters before this and this one and the one that just came in, they talk about how to prioritize programs, focus on those that are most impactful and increase productivity. But the reality is when you're at the bargaining table and, you're, and you have much more leverage to change management um, practices that involve labor negotiations, that involve work rules and job titles, you much more power when you're at the bargaining table but those contracts were settled and now we've got to find those savings increase those pro, that productivity without having the unions as um mandatory partners cuz we're in negotiation but without the unions there we won't do it as well
1: let's get into the peg uh the the mayor's uh program to eliminate the gap accounted for in this November budget modification Uh, as a savings of $1.7 billion in the current fiscal year, fiscal year 24, total of $3.7 billion across fiscal years 24 and 25 as of now, but there's more expected savings, re-estimates, cuts to come. Uh, We've already talked about that, that that come the January preliminary budget uh, plan for next fiscal year will include a variety of other adjustments. The mayor had asked for a 5% uh, savings or a combination of savings and new revenue uh, generated from each agency. Um, now, this is where I think things also get really interesting. Lots of this other stuff is interesting, but getting into the details of the peg. So, people hear some, some people hear $1.7 billion and they go, oh, the mayor's cutting the budget by $1.7 billion. But the reality is that a peg is made up of a whole bunch of ways of getting at savings and cuts to services can be anywhere from zero dollars in that peg to most of the peg right so say a little bit about broadly speaking what this what we know about this peg um i know in the initial reaction the statement that cbc put out uh from from you andrew uh, part of the comment you said was deeper analysis is needed to assess whether this first of possibly three rounds of the program to eliminate the gap minimize reductions in critical services and maximized efficiency. Um, so and, and much more, but and we'll and we'll get into some more of that. But um, you know, for example, uh, I know in this peg uh, per a city council analysis I mentioned that I that I've reviewed. Um, a third of this peg by that estimate is the result of revenue re-estimates um, and additional revenue from certain sources like speed cameras. So say a little bit about what we sort of know about the contours of this $1.7 billion in savings uh, and how people should be thinking about it.
2: Sure. I mean we we're still doing our analysis. Um we do get not not that much detail, so it takes some time to figure out exactly how to think about each of the different initiatives. Uh, but there are there are kind of a couple different <clears throat> excuse me, buckets that we put the savings in. Um, One piece is something that we refer to as funding shifts. This is no reduction in services. This is, I don't have to spend city money because I can get the federal government or the state government to pay for more of a service, often social services. Um, And so that's a a big chunk of the savings in fiscal year 24. It's just finding an alternative revenue source. Um, There is, is, as you said, also some city revenue. There's speed cameras, um, there's some plans for increased audits and stuff at the Department of Finance for tax compliance that would generate some revenue. Um, so those are sort of two pots that really have nothing to do with services. Another very large group of savings are really just re-estimates. They're the agency saying we don't need to spend as much as we thought we might on a program. We budgeted for this many seats, but we have fewer seats. We budgeted for as Andrew said earlier for 10% growth in fringe benefit costs, but it's really going to be 5%. Um, So a lot of those adjustments, um, similarly, we thought we would hire this position in January or this position at the start of the fiscal year, but we haven't yet. So we're not going to pay salary for half the year because the position's vacant. So all of those kinds of savings are identified, especially in the current year and allow you to, you know, concentrate and focus your spending on the critical services that you need Um, i will say as i said we're still working on our preliminary numbers but there is a part of this peg that is hitting services and it's higher than it was in the prior pegs You know, you go for low-hanging fruit. Um, They've done three rounds. It's getting a little bit harder to find some of that. And so I think they've had to, you know, some of the agencies have put forth initiatives that are going to reduce services that New Yorkers will need. It's still not the majority. It's not even... Probably a quarter of, of the reduction, um, but you know there is more of it this time. We see the reduction, the, the proposed cancellation of police classes, some elimination of street cleaning services at the sanitation department, um, some reductions in, in funds that flow to schools that could affect services. So these are you know these are the choices that the administration is making. Andrew, do you want to add and to I'm that because not... you've done so many pegs yourself? Well, well one of the things that we're
0: really glad to see in this, but really should comprise much more of the actions. And I'd like on to talk a little about productivity increases in the fire department, for example. So in the police department, the mayor, during the campaign, talked a lot about civilianization. Are there officers that are doing jobs that civilians could do so the officers could be preventing, fighting, responding to crime? So the question, as we reduce these police um, eliminate these police classes, is there some civilianization that can happen in the NYPD to backfill some of that loss of, of force on the street? Um, that has not been talked about, but it would be good to see that in future discussions. But Anna, tell talk if you would about the um, fire department.
2: Um, so the fire department has a couple of initiatives that get at this, not so much directly at civilianization, but for example, they have full duty firefighters who are able and, and, and could be working on fire engines and fire ladders who are in administrative jobs. And so what they're going to do is shift those individuals into, sta- into roles in firefighting that allows them to staff those engine companies, probably rely less on overtime. And they're gonna take, in this case, not civilians, but light duty firefighters who are on modified duty for injuries or other reasons and have them do the administrative roles. Um, So it's a more efficient and effective allocation of your current staff so that you're maximizing what kind of service they can provide. Um, They are uh, similarly, You know that there's a provision in their contract to reduce staffing um on fire engines some fire engine companies are four firefighters some are five there's a limited number that are staffed with five Uh, they've negotiated and they're going to bring those down to four for the rest of the fiscal year and that will generate some additional savings Mm -hmm. um and so those are are some of the
0: and these kinds of activities are marbled throughout government and that's where the partnership from city hall to the commissioners to the to the deputy commissioners and line managers with labor are is necessary to really find all these different pieces it might not from a kind of an optics point of view be so sexy like we're here's this huge thing that we're doing but these examples exist and where like with in the in the fdny they find these and use these that preserve services for people that should be the main strategy. Get rid of low-hanging fruit where you're not going to spend the money. Um, and then and then focus on how to increase efficiency.
1: Now, there's an issue here that's part of the savings plan, which has uh become a repeated strategy here by the Adams administration, which is the elimination of budgeted vacancies. Now, in some respects, people could say low-hanging fruit, it's budgeted personnel, but they're not either hired yet so we'll just remove those lines um or since they're not hired at this point you know we're gonna uh, eliminate them and think about it anew down the line when we feel like we can fund them however we see challenges across city government with a number of services everything from getting food stamps processed to getting affordable housing deals closed we see, some pretty high vacancy rates across city government where you take off some relatively small percentage of the vacancies because there's pretty big numbers across many agencies still uh, as the city has struggled with sort of pandemic era hiring and retention and competition with the private sector and all of that. Um, Andrew, what's your read on the approach to personnel and budget vacancies? Because, you know, it strikes me here that part of this conversation, we're sort of flying blind, right? Because we don't have the set out explanation of if we eliminate this number of positions, these types of positions, and this number of positions at this agency, it will impact services in this way. We just don't have that. We have the city budget, we have the mayor's management report, we have some other analyses and things like that, but we just, we don't, we don't really know the the needed personnel, we rely on the agencies to tell the office of management and budget what they need, and then they make their decisions. But that's not necessarily a perfect system.
0: So this year. is where budgeting and management collide, if not done well together. So we have, a you know, the city has eliminated vacancies, and there are staffing shortages that are affecting critical services whether they be food stamps as you say or affordable housing or some city planning activities or building inspections these are critical services we have to provide critical services and we would argue that there are is the money to do that if we focus it in the right way so we've eliminated vacancies the city has eliminated vacancies and it's been a strategy um and the city workforce has declined 27,000 full-time, full-time equivalent positions through attrition throughout the pandemic from its peak in 2019 in June. The problem is people don't leave necessarily. They leave where they leave, not necessarily where it's more or less efficient or the services are less needed or more needed. So it, we currently have almost 23,000 vacancies over 18,000 full-time vacancies. So, the key here is that we have the vacancies, but they're not necessarily allocated in the right place, and they're not being used to hire the right people at the right time. The city is not a very nimble hirer. They they don't make offers quick and interview quick and do all those things flexibly. Civil service system is, is, is a challenge to navigate um, and manage well, and the city will not between units within agencies and among agencies, move the headcount to where it's needed. Then you add to that, when you have a PEG directive saying, we're gonna have, with exceptions, an across the board hiring freeze or only hire one for every two people who leave, that is a blunt, blunt, blunt instrument. It is much harder to go position by position, unit by unit. There is no question that that is a challenge. And when you're at a central administration trying to manage, you know, all the agencies were over 70. And then, you know, all the, you know, all the different parts of it, very hard to do. On the other side, that's the challenge that has to be met to deliver services for the people. So it's a management challenge, not a budget challenge, um, because we still have over 18,000 vacancies today.
1: Right. So, so, I mean, the the bottom line here, which has been the case for a number of budget cycles in a row, which I try to bring up every chance I get is even if you eliminate some of the budgeted vacancies and even if you're someone who's just opposed to doing that on principle because you think the public sector needs to grow and be more robust and provide more services and have more personnel they're not filling all 18,000 they're not filling all these vacancies the elimination of some as a as a way to save money in the budget is is you know is again low hanging fruit the question is can they actually fill the positions they keep in the budget retain more employees so those numbers don't grow from attrition and and you know losing people to the private sector and so forth. Um, and actually improve service delivery. I mean, the, the you know, there are questions about how you manage that in the budget as you're getting at and, and critics of the mayor get at and, and so forth. But then there's also just the bigger questions around the personnel policies and improving service delivery that way too often sort of get left out of of some of these discussions.
0: And I think I think as, as we said on the, you know, we need to be able to flexibly move positions to where they're needed, call civil service lists, and and be a better hire. OMB started to do a good job before this three rounds of pegs of, of reducing its cycle time and and putting times on that needs to be a priority in city government, whether we're in a peg process or not, because we need good people in government, and we can't be a terrible employer, and succeed. Then there's the management side. Um, and this is where um, we, performance management in the city, and that's a term I'm using, but you know probably doesn't resonate with people. The bottom line is you need the right data about what you're spending, how much each unit of service costs, what you're actually doing with that, and how you're changing the world or achieving your results with that. You need those data and you need the, that regular conversation between managers, frontline workers, with commissioners, with the mayor, It should be the mayor's management board, and it should be used to manage. If you have those data, and I'm talking about an ideal, and it's really spotty throughout the city. If you're doing, have those data, then you can both deliver services well, measure the quality, measure the impact, and when you're in a budget cutting cycle, which we're in now, you can say, hold on, how do I prioritize? How do I manage this more efficiently? Right now, that's variable all over the city, so it's hard to make those decisions well. So when, especially we in the public, look at five police classes and you say, Ben, ben Max, you know, former journalist says to CBC, you know, you know, budget and operations experts, is that the wisest choice? None of us have enough information to say, oh, well, here were 12 alternatives. And that's where the city administration, that's their job is to do this well, and they need to do it better. They're doing some parts well, some parts better. But that's also where the city council, as it is a partner in governing, it should be focused on what are the impacts of these services and not just on a kind of oversight. You know, potshot, but overall, how is the city managing so it can help make those choices and not say everyone needs everything because that can't happen.
1: Part of where this seems to come up, maybe in a slightly different way than we're talking about, but is this one of the central debates over the this budgeting is with the quote unquote right sizing of the pre K program. Pre K I mean now encompassing three K as well, and questions around how many seats are needed. Is the city actually doing the outreach? to find the the kids who would fill the seats, uh, where do the seats need to go? You know, the, the Adams administration is eliminating funded seats, but still saying there will be a seat for every kid. Now that could also mean you get assigned to a seat quite far from where you live. And part of the whole idea of universality is to have, you know, have things nearby. So there's a lot of nuance to this conversation is the point. but But again, they're not being fully transparent with their analysis of their decision-making People who are criticizing them are very often not recognizing the fact that just all these seats really might not be necessary. And we're sort of having this conversation, again, in not the most uh, functional way. Uh, The solution to that is what? Is to create a new framework for how budget and personnel and government management is presented to the public? To go back to what you were saying, Andrew?
0: I think the solution is first order internal have the system that generates the right data and has the right process where those data are used between you know leaders and managers so that it exists and is managed all the time then there needs to be transparency into that not for everything because you're at a low level you need people to do their jobs without you know everyone being inundated with too much data in the public but Uh, from the public transparency and from the city council to be the partner and for the controller to do oversight. Some of these data have to be better and more transparent. So that discussion can be more sophisticated and more realistic about those trade-offs because as we've seen in the political realm, as soon as there's some data that's, well, I don't believe this, I question this, suddenly you're having a question that nothing's real. And when nothing's real, decisions aren't good. So if we can get, and you're right exactly on 3K, the question is, does the program model work well for all, or does it have its limitations, and therefore we should fund what is working best for people, and because we have those data, of what's working, and think about what's not working, and do we have the available funds to do something else for those people. Without the data, we're flying blind and we're waving a budget axe and that's where we are right now.
1: We're uh getting near the end of our time together here unfortunately, so um I'll let me ask you one more question and then if there's anything we didn't get to, I'll give you that final prompt to throw in one last thing each if there was anything you really wanted to say that I didn't help us get to or uh or or comes to mind. Um so my my final question for you both is sort of where 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 do we where do we think this is heading? Uh, again, City Council Member Justin Brannon, the chair of the Finance Committee of the City Council, he's going to hold an oversight hearing with the Speaker of the City Council, Adrian Adams, of course, and I'm sure it will be very well attended by council members. They're going to hold an oversight hearing on this uh, budget update. But again, as I said earlier in our conversation, this happened last year, the, and you outlined, Anna, the council's powers here are pretty limited and they're forced... they don't like these cuts and they want to do something differently they're sort of forced um you know to vote this modification down um but but i'm not sure where that leaves us uh council member brannon though i think looking maybe a little bit more ahead says the council is going to present a plan to avoid many of these service cuts as i mentioned they're going to ask albany for some revenue raisers that doesn't have to be higher income taxes by the way obviously albany uh, finds many ways to, to raise revenue. Um, but Councilmember Brandon said recently in multiple occasions, you know, he thinks part of what the mayor's doing here, especially related to the NYPD headcount is sort of trying to get a lot of attention on the issue and shock the federal government to helping the city more with funds, any sort of sense of where this is heading or what the pitfalls are here. Uh, Brannon said, you know, he thinks that, uh, several of these decisions will be reversed. Um, even if there's a temporary cut that goes through, then they'll reinstate the sort of upcoming NYPD classes, for example. Maybe they'll skip one or two or something like that, but then they'll they'll start to fund them again. Um, included in that is whether the city recognizes higher than expected revenue, very often conservative estimates comes in over. So any, any further thoughts on sort of where this is heading or what to watch for or what the pitfalls are here? As we move ahead, is this now mostly a conversation for the next budget process in the city, Uh, unless the city council takes really drastic measures here? What should people be watching for? What are some of the pitfalls? Where, Where do you think this is heading?
2: I mean, I, the the process is sort of evolving, you know. I, that we will have more budget cycles. We will have updated economic forecasts, not from from the city, but also from some of the fiscal monitors, the comptrollers, and the independent budget office, the council itself. So I think there will be a lot of input and in information. I think on the revenue side, one thing to you know note is the gap is big. If, if it's 10 billion, if it's 7 billion, the you know, you could have upside on revenue, but that's not going to close your whole gap. And so, you know, structurally we're out of balance and we need to at some point, you know, really focus on how to to bring that back into alignment.
0: Um I think and I think this is a healthy beginning to a conversation about priorities. Um, as Anna noted before, you know, the mayor can, you know, effectively not spend as much as in the budget. so if the if the council doesn't you know go along but the appropriation, they can spend lower than the appropriation. So the current year, if the mayor wants to take all these, you know, that's it, it's also very much about the future and thinking about the future and the long run will actually, if it's done thoughtfully will actually inform better choices. That's part of why we got into this problem without thinking about the future. So it's good to start this discussion now and think about it in a multi-year basis and hopefully break the bad habits of the past hope springs eternal break the bad habits of the past and when we if we forestall some of the cuts for this year or for next year make sure we didn't just set ourselves up for us as much as i'd love to have this conversation with you ben a year from now it would be better for all new yorkers if we were having a different conversation because the choices were different And hopefully those lessons that are learned that are really confronting everyone now, because these are painful, hard choices, but hopefully those lessons will be learned and think more on a multi-year basis to make those choices um, wiser.
1: All right. Any final thoughts we didn't get to, or or that's a good place to leave it. Do we leave anything out, Anna?
2: I mean, one thing I would raise is, well, you know, it feels like COVID is over, though, you know, people still keep getting, getting sick, you know. One of the big impacts we haven't talked about is what happened to remote work, hybrid work, uh, office districts. And that is going to take a while. And that is a very big risk on the city's recovery. Central business districts and commercial real estate have generated a lot of economic activity and revenue for the city. And we just don't know. Like The crystal ball is not giving us an answer about what will happen over the next two, three years. And that's part of what contributes to some of the concern about the revenue growth um and and i think people need to keep that in mind you know do we get riders back on the subway and do we get workers back into offices and shopping and and going to lunch and in the business districts
1: right we certainly seem to have plateaued a bit on on all of that um and we'll see what the impact is i i mean i'm not going to keep asking questions but that also raises i believe still some outstanding questions about where people are declaring as their primary residences and where they pay taxes and we still need to see sort of more data come in on on all of that and how the pandemic trends have shifted and maybe some of them are shifting back you know maybe there's people who moved more primarily to their second homes uh who are high earners and and for a tax year or two and then and then shifting back you know we'll we'll see that um let's leave it there (laughs) we could keep going here for hours Andrew Ryan, president of Citizens Budget Commission, Anna Champany, vice president for research at CBC. Thank you both for all these insights. Always good chatting.
2: Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Talk with you soon.